0: You have to have a different strategy around each of those stakeholders all centered around the same mission. This idea of influencing stakeholders is interesting because in our space, I don't want the influence to be me. The influence needs to be our mission and the work we're trying to do. And if we keep that centered, then we should be okay with all the audiences and coming at them from the lens that they see the world. But the mission and the focus of the people we're serving has to be centered and not, not us.
1: Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Schopp. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. With in-person and online programs ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications, GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, CEO and author Patrick Salee. Patrick is the author of The Solitary CEO, which chronicles his road to sobriety, which included a stint in jail, and his comeback as a leader. He generously shares stories that require a ton of vulnerability and humility, as well as the lessons he's learned and applied in his personal and professional life. The book was ranked number two in workplace culture on Amazon, and I highly recommend you check it out. We'll be talking about it soon. Patrick is also president and CEO of Vibrant Health KC, a federally qualified health center that offers medical care, dental care, Behavioral Health, and Women's Health Services in Wyandotte County, Kansas. His career is centered on nonprofit leadership with roles ranging from fundraising and business development to operations. Patrick was recognized as a next-gen leader by the Kansas City Business Journal for his work increasing access to high-quality health care in the community. Patrick, we are thrilled to have you with us today. Welcome to Chief Influencer. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite and glad to be here. Well, I am so excited to dive into uh, the book as a starting point. The solitary CEO. Um, can you just tell us, you know, a little bit of the backstory? Why did you choose that title?
0: So yeah, thanks for for promoting the book and sharing that. Um, a lot of it came um, the the idea from the book came from my experiences um, in leadership and management throughout throughout my career. Um, and then the title came from, from a lot of profound experiences I had, um, spending time in solitary in jail. Um, and, um, and it, there was, you know, there's some profound moments there and really started thinking, um, about self-evaluation and decision-making and leadership. And, and, um, and then as I've, as I've grown in my career, I thought there's a lot of connections between how I see the world and how I see leading people and how I see leading organizations and, or the lessons that I, that came to me or that sort I thought about in those, in those, in those moments
1: yeah i was um just struck by that experience and that opportunity it gave you for reflection how it became a transition point in your life in the book you share that that many leaders struggle with feelings of being trapped and can you tell us what advice do you
0: have for them so i think the the connection to the to my experience in solitary and, and leadership is that in any leadership roles not just the ceo but in leadership roles we i we find ways to isolate ourselves and build silos around our work and those silos can make us very defensive and very um resentful of the people we lead of the organizations we work work with and for um and they they can be barriers to our our ability to connect to people and succeed and and um i'm i'm no perfectionist on this by any means i'm no i'm not i wouldn't claim to be an expert but i, I do have a lot of experience in with people and sort of recentering, uh, my own leadership in the people that I work with. And I I think the biggest thing people can do is to re reground themselves, recenter themselves in the basics of the work. Um, and, and I mean that from go get your hands dirty, doing the thing you used to do, you know, the thing you grew up doing and, and sort of re reconnect to the purpose of the work. And that helps you, um, sort of get out of your own head and your own silo of of what's going on and and where work needs to be done.
1: I think this message of breaking down silos is so important and it'll resonate with a lot of leaders. Um you know most leaders have a range of stakeholders from their employees to board members, you know, customers, industry peers. I wonder if you could talk about some of the most important people or groups that you have to uh, influence to achieve the impact that you want to make in the world and and I know that that some of that influence is about breaking down silos, like you said.
0: Right. I, I think in the nonprofit world, the way we operate as a as a sector, creates additional layers of difficulty in terms of stakeholders. And so you you have board members um, as your governing body that you that you answer to. You have have staff at varying varying levels. You have community partners. You have funders, whether that's individual donors or foundation or government funding, that all have requirements and expectations and, and outcomes they want to see. Um, and then you have the people you serve and I get to that last in that order of, 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 of stakeholders, but it really needs to be the first, right? Like, so it's that they are the most, are we, are we doing what we're setting out to do and are we changing their lives? Um, and it's easy with all of those stakeholders to, um, to get lost in what's the most important and to, and to move away from, from in our case patients, but the clients were, or the impact we're trying to, to have. Um, and I think each one of those, those stakeholders has a different, you have, you have to have a different strategy around each of them, um, all centered around the same mission. Um, and so I, I think just this, this idea of influencing stakeholders is interesting because in our space, it, it isn't, I don't want the influence to be me the influence needs to be our mission and the work we're trying to do and if we keep that centered then we, then we should be okay with all the audiences and and coming at them from their the lens that they see the world um but the the mission and the focus of the people we're serving has to be centered and not not us and as you've centered the
1: mission around people at vibrant health kc you've you've sort of shifted the vision for what um the organization what role the organization can play yeah. can you talk about that what was it when you came in give everybody a little bit more information about you know what vibrant sure. does and then where you have taken that
0: yes um so i i'm i'm really excited about where where we're going and and so we're, so we're, you mentioned we're a federally qualified health center which means we are um a community health center providing medical dental behavioral health services we'll see about 20,000 patients this year we are governed by a, currently, a sixteen-member board, which more than half of the board are patients of the health center, so access care with us. Um, it is easy in the healthcare world to get zeroed in on healthcare. We are a healthcare provider, and and we are, and we're a good one, and we have great physicians and nurse practitioners and medical assistants and nurses that provide tremendous care every single day, um, and that's really important. When you think about communities and what impacts health, we operate in Wyandotte County, Kansas, which is on the Kansas side of the Kansas City uh, metro. And it is the most under-resourced community in the metro. It is the most under-resourced community in the state. And we rank regularly at the bottom of county health rankings in the state of Kansas as the lowest performing. So in all the good things, we rank at the bottom and all the bad things, we rank at the top. It's a bad combination. And the, the, when you think about how the, what influences that, about twenty percent of the factors that influence your health happen it can be controlled in a clinic. The other eighty percent happen out in the community, and, and arguably have nothing to do with healthcare. It's about access to food, education, jobs, safe housing, you know, violence in the community, um, insurance rates, those kinds of things. You know, um, poverty rates, those those sorts of things impact whether or not a person is healthy or a community is healthy. So we we function in, in zip codes that have life expectancy that ranges anywhere from 15 to 25 years less than uh, zip codes that are 10 minute drive away. Our perspective is that that's unacceptable. And we should not live in a community. We should not function in a community where someone can drive 10 minutes and expect to live 20 or 25 years of a life just based on the zip code that they live in. Um, And so if you think about, okay, what do you do about that as an, as an organization, what do you do about that? Um, and when all this, all the data I just, just shared being, being true, well, you got to get outside of the walls of healthcare and start figuring out how do we improve place? So we've worked closely with team and with our board and with community stakeholders to lay out a path for how do we focus, um, on what happens in a, um, you know, in a clinic and what happens in a clinic access to care is critically important, but so is access to jobs, food, affordable housing, and, and all those um, sorts of um, social determinants of health. And so we've created a community development corporation to get into real estate development first around a new clinic location for vibrant health. But it, as that sort of rolls forward into um, how do we think about investment in housing? How do we think about supporting and investing in locally owned, minority owned businesses. And what does that do for community connection and improvement of place? And so it, it for me, it's an issue of kind of changing the lens of a healthcare organization that sees expectations to we're a social justice and equity organization that provides healthcare and does all these other things.
1: That is a shift that is really powerful. It makes a lot of sense, but I just wonder, was it easy for you to get your stakeholders on board with that shift and 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 how did you go through the the process of transformation as an organization with your stakeholders and you know the governance um to get there
0: right so it's a lot it has not been easy although i will i will also say our community and our board and our funders have been hungry for this kind of vision i think our community is missing a, a an organization really throwing out there and saying, Hey, we're going to go do something big here. Um, and so, I'm, so we've gotten a lot of positive response, but it takes a, it takes a lot of time and a lot of conversations and it starts with laying out the information. And so we, we, we lay out the case for what's the issue. We are, our, our board read a book called how our, how neighborhoods make us sick that breaks down in, in relatively simple terms, how violence, food insecurity, um, low income housing issues, those kinds of things impact the health and well-being of people in the neighborhoods. And, and it was the purpose of that was to get them a deep understanding of what's happening to make people sick. Like, what is the, you know, what, this isn't us handing out, not handing out enough band-aids what's actually happening in our community. And, and then we had a motivated group of people who felt like, Hey, we, we could, we, nobody's doing that. We need to go, we need to go do this kind of, kind of work and, and put ourselves put ourselves out there a little bit. I think the other, the other piece is we've had a lot of conversations with influential folks from, you know, the mayor's office to, um, you know, capital in DC and funders, um, you know, locally and nationally who, who know this space really well and can provide us guidance. And so it ends up being each one of these conversations builds on, you have an idea and you have another conversation and it it adds to the idea and it just keeps building, um, through a lot of people's contributions, even if if they might say they they didn't contribute much other than a, a one hour conversation, it, the idea just keeps building on what what's possible and and what what's needed in this community. Well,
1: it sounds like by doing that, you're making so many more people in the community feel involved. You know that their fingerprints are on this transformation right. and they're part of it. And I mean that must have advantages.
0: It does. And so I'll, let me tell you two two relatively quick stories on this. So so from an influence standpoint. I think part of it is when we're when we're doing this every single day, our leadership teams thinking about this stuff and 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 doing research and having conversations, when you meet people who are just learning about vibrant health or just hearing this idea, you can't jump them from A to Z. Like you, you, you can't say, Hey, nice to meet you, here's where we're going. It's just too much and too fast. You we've got to feed information along the way to kind of get them to find Z on their own. And that them finding that outcome, that place. On their own, even with a little bit of guidance from us, gives them a whole lot more ownership in that outcome and feeling of like, oh, this is the right, this is the right thing to do. The, the other thing we've done a little bit differently than a lot of organizations is we've really engaged community in telling us what's needed. So in in our world, in the nonprofit world, a lot of organizations and a lot of funders even show up with like, here is what you need. This is a you know, this is a low income area, and we know what we what you need, and so here we are to bring you what you need, and it it often falls short because it's not led by and engaged with the people who do know who are the people in the neighborhood and they know what they need and they know what's, what needs to be fixed and they know what's important now. And, and so we've done a lot of work to engage community and the governance of this community development corporation and helping drive us. And recently we had a community media community advisory council meeting, and, and we were asking for nominations of board members for the CDC and, um, one of the gentlemen that was newer to the meeting raised his hand and said, you know, I've, I've been around board stuff before. I'm familiar with this. I've been asked for my opinion on who should be on the board. And I've certainly never been asked to consider myself as a board member. Is that what you all are doing? And before staff could jump in and say, yo, yeah, yes, that's what we're doing. Somebody else, another resident stood up and spoke for five minutes, probably, more eloquently than any of us could have about yes, that's absolutely what vibrant Health's doing, and here's why, and here's how, and here's why this matters, and here's how they're thinking about it differently, and told a complete, com- very compelling story of of why we're doing this and what it looks like to have community lead, really genuinely lead in this process, and it just has a whole different as the potential for an entirely different outcome.
1: It it makes so much sense, and it's very powerful when you talk about doing it, and at the same time there are so many leaders who must be frightened of this idea of giving away the power and giving away the influence to the community, perhaps thinking, well, they don't have the expertise or, you know, they don't have the training or, and so, um, was that a barrier that you had to overcome either personally or for the other leaders and stakeholders you have? Yeah,
0: it, it, it was, and is a barrier. I mean, it is a, it is a, it is a challenge. It is the, probably the biggest challenge of this is trusting that it's and reassuring it's the right thing because you start talking about building, building, you're talking about risk and, and financial, who's raising the money and who's, who's making what decisions. And there is you, your mind goes really quickly to risk and there is risk, but what that, the answer isn't to pull back. In my opinion, the answer isn't to pull back. The answer is to lean in. Okay. If we're worried about their, training to make decisions on this sort of thing or to understand the complexity of the decision. Let's provide the training. Like it's the answer isn't let's pull back and make the decision ourselves. The answer is provide the training. So you're informing community. Plus you're developing people in their skill sets and you're, that is in itself, the training you're providing is, is helping to build community. Um, there's an interesting book, um, that I would recommend called the power of giving away power. And, and it is, it is a good leadership book in general. And it, and frankly doesn't talk a ton about community stuff, but it's about what power is gained by the leader when they give away power and they entrust others with the power to make a decision. Um, and I think it's true here. I think that the community ties and engagement with Vibrant, the, the success of this project will, which will benefit Vibrant and all the patients that we serve, um, and allow us to do a bunch of cool things in the future is only possible if we're willing to give up power now.
1: Mm. Wow. You know, part of giving away power, um, I suspect, is being willing to give away your ideas.
0: And... I don't have any ideas. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. The the absolute best ideas are other people's ideas. Like, I, I, to me, and this is a little bit, probably this is too much inside information, but I'll tell my wife all the time, like, to me the one of the most enjoyable strategies is to have an idea and figure out how do i make this how do i make a person have this idea how do i help influence them or share information or, you know talk about this in a way that they will latch on to the idea and they will build on it and they will make it their own and they can claim it and own it i does does me no good to claim ideas it doesn't matter let everybody else have the ideas. And I just try to plant seeds around people to get there.
1: It takes, I think, a lot of maturity for a leader to to do that. Cause if you come up with a I think it's a great idea, sometimes, you know, you want to be able to get some credit for that. Um yeah. I, I'm just curious, like any examples of where you sort of learned that or picked that up or inspiration for that? Because it's something I think a lot of leaders could really um uh, take a
0: lesson from? Well, um, I think it's probably a lot of places. I spent most of my career in fundraising and I learned pretty quickly that, that the, that the donor is the smartest person in the room. And, and so I, you know, it creates this curiosity of understanding their, um, their way of thinking and, and that, um, any individual, whether it's a donor or, or anybody else, i I just have a lot of curiosity about how people think. And, and so it worked, it, it served me well in fundraising role, but I think it serves well in leadership because it, it, once you see it in action a couple of times, and I have some, some close, a good friend of mine runs a foundation here and, and, um, we've talked about the strategy and, and she's called me before and said, like, like, I tried your tactic and I watched it work and like, right. if it, 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 it is, it is awesome. And it, it, it feels, um, it feels good to watch your idea show up in somebody else's thing, or and, and again, they people build on it, so it, it makes it better. Yeah. Um, sh- um, so I, you know, I don't know exactly where it came from, but it's. It, I've seen it play out a couple times or many times through my career, and it and it just um, is a re- a rewarding approach.
1: Yeah, it's a true form of influence, right? If you can um, help others generate ideas that mirror your ideas, but then you know through community make them better and then they're more likely to actually happen which is what you know right. which is what you want as a right. leader um right. i like you that you mentioned that lesson you learned you know through fundraising because we see that many successful leaders in the nonprofit world were successful fundraisers are successful fundraisers and you know in your book you even quote um a pitbull lyric which is ask for money and get advice ask for advice get money twice. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, it's spot on. I mean, it is, and it is uncanny how often it works, um, to ask, um, um, people for advice and their input and what it leads to in their ownership of your outcome. Um, you know, my parents taught me a long time ago, um, how, what, you know, how people feel about their priorities and people love their family. They love their jobs. Um, you know they love their kids, right? So asking about people's kids is an immediate creates this immediate bond and interest because you cared enough to to ask about my kids and and had some interest in you know you remember their name or you remember something about them or whatever and and it creates a, an, an emotional connection with people or, and and when you remember those kind of things it, it it helps. But people wanting to contribute to your success and if you if they feel like they're engaged in the idea whatever the thing is and they're helping it was their idea that they put in your head that you went and executed on they that is their thing like they so it just creates this deeper connection with people um that by asking for advice that that leads to significant investment whether that's philanthropic or sort of you know thinking about it from private equity kind of thing yeah
1: you're you're somewhat um obsessive i guess i can say about this concept of making it not mine but someone else's right uh, yeah. you know it's, it's their idea and and even from a language standpoint i love that you mentioned in the book um how you know just even a little word can change how a leader is perceived by their team so tell us about your your pet
0: peeve there <laughs> so you're you're going to get me on a soapbox on this but i can't i really can't stand it when people say my team it it you know maybe there's a circumstance where where that's an appropriate use you know i've never owned my own company and so if i owned a you know private company that was all that i started it from you know built from the ground up maybe i would maybe i would feel better about my company uh, as a term or my you know whatever but people use it just for my team my people my assistant my chief operating officer my whatever and it just It is, nobody is ours. And none of, I think it goes back to this, to this premise that I, I learned a long time ago, which is none of us accomplish anything on our own, no matter how simple you think it is, it always involves other people. And by using the term, my related to team success, it is redirecting other people's success to you. And that's selfish again, and to me, leadership is in and of itself, a selfless act. And you have, if you're going to be successful, you have to sacrifice and selfish leaders don't, in my opinion, don't often succeed. Um, truly. And, um, the, my, the use of my is so possessive and so self-centered on all success, right. That, um, and, and we're talking about people. They're their own people. They are employed in this organization. They make their own decisions. They're grown ups. They're successful in doing all sorts of things. Like they're not mine. Like, it's just a it's just a pet peeve that really gets under my skin. But I think it matters. And I think when, when employees or team members hear it, whether they could articulate it or not, they notice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I that um connected with me because I sometimes find that to be grating too when I hear folks say that. But it really um, it's just a great example of what you're talking about in the book about um, going from, you know, being solitary as a leader in a silo to breaking down those silos and um, kind of, you know, bringing those walls down. And you can imagine why, you know, being in a silo kind of using that singular possessive term yeah. kind of indicates that. And so shedding that term is kind of one Piece of breaking those walls down.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think the the other piece that that re- relates, I guess, in my head in terms of the the silo piece. How a leader think about it? I don't ever trust my lens on what's happening in the organization. So I just it's sort of like I say this to our management team at times. Like I don't believe my own eyes because I know that I get a lens. So if if I'm the CEO of the organization and people bring me complaints feedback opportunities whatever it is i know i'm getting their best i'm getting their because they know they're coming to me with the ceo so i'm getting i get that lens on everybody so it, it 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 isn't their whole person and and so i i have to always go back to i can't trust everything i see and and i think we get ourselves in this position as leaders at times where we're frustrated with what's happening with with the organization with our direct reports whatever and but we're looking into that little lens that we have versus trying to see the whole picture and we're connecting with it's then it's on us to break it down. And invariably when I'm mad at everybody else and I think you know, everything's falling apart and everything's failing and we're struggling. The best thing for me to do is go connect with people because I know I'm angry because I've built up a bunch of walls around myself around it and I'm, you know, throwing a pity party. So the best thing I can do is walk to, the clinic and talk to a medical assistant about their day, talk to a nurse about what's going on, question, you know, engage with the pharmacy team, whatever it may be. That's the absolute best thing I can do to get out of that tiny lens. Yeah.
1: You know, it strikes me that your leadership style and the way that you connect with people and sort of the role that you see yourself was clearly influenced by um, many of your life experiences, but especially the experience that you write about in The Solitary CEO about being in jail and being in solitary for a week. Um, it, one thing that really struck me that I thought, wow, this, this you know, made an impact on Patrick was um, the experience you had after being in jail where you drove by an encampment for people experiencing homelessness and then you recognize somebody. Can you talk about that?
0: Uh, yeah. 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 Um, and that was an impactful, it was a really impactful, um, experience because, you know, jail is not a place anyone wants to be. Um, and nobody, um, I mean, you, you, that might seem as like a weird or obvious thing to say, but, but nobody wants to be there. Um, nobody thinks they belong there. Nobody, nobody I met in jail would claim to be a criminal. And I think that I think that matters because people did stuff. People did bad. I did bad. I I earned my way there. I didn't. You know, this wasn't a fluke thing. I I deserved to be there, as did everybody else. Um, but nobody saw themselves. Nobody allowed themselves to be seen in their own in their own eyes as a criminal. And so that that showed itself in the way people talked to each other about why they were there. It's always you know so nobody there saw themselves that way and, but everybody outside and certainly the guards would saw us that way. And so, so months later, I'm driving down the street back to the work um, going, going back to the office from a, from a lunch downtown and um, Pat and this guy walks in front of my car that I had sat next to and talked to for hours um, in jail. And it just struck me like the difference between where he was going and where I was going and that not too long ago we were sitting next to each other in the exact same crappy place. And just the, that that's not a, and I, I, I didn't see it and don't see it from a lens of like, I've done something better than he's done and he, you know, he's there and I'm here. It, I look at it as it's all dumb luck and it, and we are all so very close to our worst decisions and our worst actions. And we're so close to our, our best, but he and I are not different. We're in very different situations for a variety of reasons, including, you know, the families and places we were born into, but, but we're not different. And, and that it just impacts how I see people's decisions and, you know, the work that we're trying to do as an organization and, and frankly, leadership, like people do bad stuff, right. But we're not, all that different.
1: I think that it's just like such a simple phrase that really connects. Like, we're not different because that goes back to you talking about why members of the community should have an active role in the future and the governance of the organization and, you know, why you're spending time, you know, walking around. You might be in different roles, but you're not different. And everyone has, right. um, a role to play in an organization. And yeah, what a great reminder for leaders who sometimes might be told through certain kind of training or experiences, they are different because they're in a different role and they might start to believe that.
0: Rio, yeah, it is very easy in this, in a leadership role to think that your ideas are the best ideas and the only ideas. Um, but, but working hard to understand the value of every contributor um and every you know, participant, whether that's you know, patient feedback to us, who aren't contributors from you know sort of a staff perspective, but they are participants in our organization, and 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 you know what do we hear from them, and how do we respond? Like it, it, it you, there has to be an intrinsic appreciation for the value of everybody. Yeah,
1: I want to um, talk a little bit more about some of the you know decisions that that you made to to own your story and to share your story. Um, We often hear from chief influencers that, you know, it's difficult to separate your professional brand from your personal brand in today's world, right? With, you know, social media and the internet, it's just not the way it used to be. Um, And so many leaders embrace that gray. In your case, um, you know, you didn't have to publicly share your mistakes and, and, you know, obviously before you even had the book, you've, you've shared that with people very openly, but then, you know, publishing it, but you chose to do that. And there were some sort of specific experiences you shared that, that I think influenced that. Can you talk about your decision to own your story and share your story?
0: Yeah. I, I interviewed for a job when I was about a hundred days sober and, um, the search firm I had, I had specifically approached them and said can you can i tell you something in confidence and they said absolutely and i told them what i was going through and what had happened and you know where i was and and would that and asked them would this impact my my ability to participate in in the the search and they said no it wouldn't and that it would be held within com- with their confidence several months later i got a hold of them and asked sort of what happened because i was never um there was never I never heard back. And they said that they had shared what I had said with the hiring uh, manager. And that had had sort of knocked me out of the process. Um, and it felt like that's the last time someone's going to use this against me. And, and the person said, when I said to them, <laughs> you know, the, in, in a number of words, this is entirely inappropriate. Um, they said, you're only a hundred days sober. Who's going to, who's to say that's going to last, which on the one hand I would advise not to be a thing to say to people, but, um, right. but the, the, for me, there was just this, um, um, I don't know. It was never going to be something someone's going to use against me again. And, and so it became, all right, how, how do I use this as part of the, the personal brand for lack of a better term? But if I own it, and i say it first you can't use it against me um because i'm telling you and and I, when i interviewed for this job it i had been public about it cuz i think when i interviewed for this job i was four or five years sober so it was findable for sure um but it wasn't maybe as public as it is now but it it was i'd i'd shared it um and i certainly wasn't hiding it but when i interviewed for the job they had not yet done a background check and so in the final interview with the board search committee i said Hey, I gotta, you know, you're gonna, this is gonna happen. You're gonna, um, you're gonna do a background check and it's gonna tell you that I'm a felony DUI. And, you know, here's my take on that. And here's my um, here's how I've responded. And I had a couple articles that i would written for a website that I printed and handed to them and said, You can read my thoughts here. They're on the internet if you want to find them. This is not something I've hidden, but you all don't know about it and you need to know about it from me. And I think that the response to this is way more about me than the action does. And I got positive feedback from it and, and, and they hired me. So, so I think their perspective was, well, if he's going to tell us that, that bluntly and that candidly, what's, we don't have to worry that he's going to be keeping secrets in, in the job. Like this is a, this is a pretty transparent person. And, and I would say beyond that, that has all those reactions that I've gotten have reinforced my willingness or comfort in, in saying it because it, at first it felt like I'm, I'm scared to say this. Um, and, and you, you have some negative reactions, but the more positive ones and the bigger positive ones, um, the more re it reinforces the sharing of it and the telling of it and, and the openness. And so it's, it has been very, It has been very positive for me to be public about my situation.
1: Yeah. And you say in the book, you know, people like want to work with people. They want to work with people they like. And, um, you know, that there's really, even though it's difficult, there's an advantage to being vulnerable and transparent. And I think that that, you know, it's it's such a, I mean, fairly high stakes way to do that. But obviously it worked well to to, um, share that with the board they hired you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, in our kind of work and frankly in any place, I think the transparency helps where I'm a, I'm a middle-aged straight white man that has, you know, two parents that are college educated and, and married. And, you know, I've, I've all the privilege, you know, the lived experience privilege in the world that you could ask for. And, um, and I've been incredibly lucky. I think the piece for me on where it, where that these things connect are, I also have a lived experience that I brought on myself that's relatable to challenges everybody faces or many people face. And so when working in a, in a place that's incredibly diverse and people are facing all sorts of mental health challenges and substance abuse challenges and many other things, um, there is some relatability to it that matters because um, that matters for, for me to be successful in this work.
1: Yeah. To understand the people who, you know, all people go through stuff, and right. that bringing that experience as a leader, and you know, you can see that come to life through the transformation that you have made and are making it vibrant health KC, um, not just focusing on you know the band aids as you said it, but really looking at the social determinants of health, to use the formal term, but you know the right. the, the housing and yep. all the other conditions, um, so that you can make an impact on on people's lives, and you've had you know. Um, a, a, a first hand experience um that most people haven't had in a leadership role.
0: Yep, abs- absolutely.
1: Um I want to ask you as you know kind of our wrap up question, a, a lot of chief influencers tell us that they don't always get inspiration from their direct industry peers, but you know they find it in unusual places and um wondering if you could just tell us some of the areas that you've got inspiration as a leader throughout your life outside of maybe just, you know, other nonprofit leaders?
0: Sure. I, and I, I, I take inspiration from a lot of different places. Um, And I think that ranges from, you know, there's several folks in Kansas city um, that are leading organizations or leading businesses. Um, You know, I specifically point to a couple of guys, Tyler Enders runs a group called Made in KC and they own several small businesses. You may be familiar with Rainy Day Books. They recently purchased Rainy Day Books um, and are doing phenomenal stuff. And the way he engages community and thinks about business beyond beyond the business and into how it's impacting people is, is really interesting and creative mm-hmm. and profound. Um, Dan Smith is another guy that runs, um, he runs a group called Porterhouse KC um, and they do a lot of investment and training and support for urban businesses uh predominantly minority owned businesses and um their investment in people like every time I think I'm investing in people and trying to help people like I, I I have a coffee with Dan and I'm like my goodness like he is he pours energy into people and so there's you know there's I go on there's a ton of people especially in this town that that do a lot of great stuff but I, I think the creativity around how you think about work um if you're trying to be innovative has to come from Everywhere. So I grew up playing sports, so I rely a lot on you know, my memories of basketball or baseball or other things. I, you know, I also I used to get my hair cut at a um, one of those like great clips type places. It's real fast and efficient, and and so I would talk to the manager there about like, how do you all think about engaging with a customer? You got 15 minute window. Like oddly enough, like a lot of medical appointments are 15 to 20 minutes. Like, there, as much as there should, there is not comparisons between. Getting your hair cut in 15 minutes and, and a medical visit. There are some, and and from a back end standpoint. And and I actually yesterday was having a conversation with our CMO and we were talking about work structure and use a, an analogy to waiting tables at a at a restaurant and the range of ways that gets done from a workflow standpoint. And it you just gotta tap into that sort of thing, in my opinion, to tap into that sort of thing to find like how's it working there? Like, at the most well-run five-star restaurant, how do they think about experience? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for us from patients? Obviously, we're getting more detail and more personal, but there's still an experience. There's still a process. Like, how are we pulling from all all sorts of industries to find ways to be better?
1: Yeah, those are, I mean, I think you can get inspiration from so many places. And and one of the ones I I um, wanted to make sure you had a chance to talk about was the, uh, the hemp program and, oh, yeah. and some things you took away from that.
0: Yep so I'm involved with this organization called the Helsberg Entrepreneurial Mentorship Program and it is for it was it was founded by Barnett Helsberg of Helsberg Diamonds um and is a is a mentoring program I'm, I've got a great mentor His name is Bruce Reed and he's been tremendous for me um and so I have we've been meeting every two weeks coming up on 3 years now and tremendous guy um the organization hosts these groups called uh, they call table of 5 and the premise is that Five people is the right amount of people to have around the table um, for sharing a meal because there's it doesn't it's not so big that there's a bunch of side conversation. It's enough that there's a plenty to talk about and everybody can participate. It's the right size, the right size group. And so um, I've been to a couple of them and have really enjoyed them. Um, and we brought that idea into Vibrant Health, and and we have we are coming up on I think our third hosting tables of five. Um, for lunch and we have a member of our management team participate and then four members from other parts of the organization part of the motivation was this from this i was having a conversation with a pharmacy tech who said i feel like we're in this bubble and nobody knows we're even here and i you know i work with this team but i but i don't know anybody else in this 200 person organization and i don't know what's going on in dental i don't know what's going on in these other other places that i don't even know anybody there um and so even like some comfort, discomfort, walking into another clinic area because you just, you don't know anybody. So we, so we, we brought this idea and thinking this is not a conversation about work. This isn't like very specifically, we don't want the conversation to be all about work. Um, certainly stuff may come up, but in general, like, just focus on getting to know each other because what we, what we, what we know and surveys would tell you this, like connections to people help keep people in jobs. So if, if, if beyond your team, although your team is the most influential, connections throughout the organization help retain talent. So if we can connect people from dental to pharmacy, even if they may never interact um, outside of this, hopefully they build a relationship and a friendship, see each other in the hall, the break room, whatever, um, get to know each other. Um, Also connecting across departments might open up work conversations in the future. You know, we've, we've had this issue we can't solve between family medicine department and pharmacy and like they, they broke bread runs and got to know each other, didn't talk about it, but when they get back to the to the office, let's say, they might be able to be part of the solution and solving solving issues that come up because they know each other now. And so I'm excited about the potential. We're just really getting going, but it, it has we think it has a ton of potential and and certainly we stole it straight from him.
1: Well, it's great to borrow those yeah. ideas and bring yeah. them back to what you're doing and it's just, you know, for leaders who are listening to this thinking how can I break down silos? It's just a perfect example of something small and easy that you can do getting five people around a table who, you know, maybe aren't always together. So yeah. I, I I love yeah. that um that very specific example and it really inspires me. Um Patrick, it's been so great talking to you today. I know that for folks who want to find out more about you, they can buy the solitary CEO on Amazon or wherever they get their books. And I know for anyone who does, they'll take away some great lessons like I did. Where else can folks uh, find
0: you? Um, that's a good question. I'm, I'm on, I would say I'm more active on LinkedIn than I am on most other places. Certainly check out our website, vibranthealthkc.org. Um, I still am on Twitter. Um, I suppose we have to call it X now, but, um, and it's, I think it's Patrick J. Sally. um, we, I put it in the, in the notes or whatever the, the, yeah. uh, your post, um, and the and, articles uh, you've, written, yeah. you've written, for, um, remind me of the website I've, I've written for a website called the Goodman project. It's been a number of years now. Um, but they're probably still out there. Um, a number of things about relationships and sobriety and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's probably about it at this point.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.